0: The Catholic Channel on SiriusXM 129 presents America This Week, a smart Catholic take on faith and culture with Father Matt Malone and Kerry Weber. Good day. I'm Kerry Weber, executive editor for America Magazine, and my co host, Father Matt Malone, is traveling today. Uh, and I am joined by uh, Jim Keane.
1: Hi, Kerry, how are you?
0: Good. And here each week we offer you the news and analysis from the intersection of the church and the world gathered by our team at America. And with us today also is our national correspondent, Mike O'Loughlin. Hey, Kerry. Glad to have you here.
2: Yeah, it's good to be here.
0: Mike is often based in Chicago, but today...
2: I'm in mean, New York. In a, uh,
0: the big city, the Big Apple. A
2: slightly bigger city than <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, we don't want to diminish Chicago, which is <laughs> in true. and of itself a large city.
2: A wonderful American city.
0: Which, yeah, you live there. It's true. I mean, making it that much better. It's wonderful. <laughs> uh, well, thank you both for joining us today. We're really very glad to be here. Uh, and speaking to his own past and to the potential change that uh, it will bring for his life and for our society is John Miller, who is here with us today. He's a former reporter for The Wall Street Journal. He's a great writer. He's um, contributed to us a number of times. So welcome to the show.
3: Thanks. Thanks so much for having me, Carrie.
0: Uh, so your article is called My Ancestor Owned 41 Slaves. What do I uh, owe their descendants? This is a pretty heavy question, uh, and I wonder if we can just start with how you learned about this information in the first place.
3: Um, I have a cousin who is fascinated by genealogy, and she's spent much of the last 10 years just digging into family history of all kinds. And I think in 2013, she found out that there was a man in Texas in the 1840s who was my great-grandmother's grandfather who had enslaved 41 people. Um, And this was a big shock. Uh, I sort of assumed this was true. I grew up in Brussels. My parents are expatriates from the U.S., but I knew that they had roots going back into the 18th century of Irish and English and Scottish immigrants, many of whom had embraced slaveholding as a a way of life. Um, But what really struck me is how close it was that this was... I I knew my great-grandmother. She was... lived to be 98, I think, and I was 10 when she died, so I I have memories of her physically. And it was her grandfather who had enslaved 41 people. So, the fact that it was that close made it seem like history was very close in a way that I had never... it never hit me like that before. And so I kind of resolved, I thought, you know, this is pretty interesting. I'm a writer. You know, here's something I, I should be writing about. And so that's what planted the seed um, that turned into this piece.
0: And you talk a bit about how, uh, as you sort of sought to write about this this topic, you realized that something that you had been able to kind of look at as like a, an interesting part of your family history was, in fact, you know... a Uh, something affecting the daily reality of a lot of other people
3: it was very intellectual to me uh, and my first draft of the story was kind of oh here's something interesting and it got rejected by pretty much any media organization (laughs) you care to name uh, New York Times Washington Post everybody said no Um, and as I started talking to more African-American historians I figured out why it's that there's a kind of obliviousness that a lot of white Americans have towards slavery still that it doesn't impact their family. Whereas if you're African American and you see the the p- poverty and other consequences of slavery, it's obvious that it's had an impact. If you live in the north, your family probably migrated from the south um, in the nineteenth the twentieth century after reconstruction. So slavery is something that's there. It's a ghost that haunts you every day. And it's not the case for white American families. So as I sort of integrated that into my thinking and started reporting, on what some white Americans were doing to try to atone for slavery, it became a reported piece, and something that actually was better. And um, America got the best version of this story. I'm happy to say.
0: <laughs> we're happy to say that too. Yeah, uh, uh,
2: John. Um, something I found interesting in, um, in in your story was you were talking about uh, people atoning for this uh, this. Uh, past, with, for this history. But you talked about this tension between symbolic actions and doing something more than symbolism. Can, can you explain why there's tension there?
3: So a big uh, th- uh, question amongst uh, African American thinkers and historians is still the question of reparations, which this country has paid out to other groups. For example, Japanese Americans in the 1980s whose families had been interned during World War II, received cash payments. Um, Germany uh, compensated Israel for the Holocaust. So this historical precedent of nations doing this kind of thing. And so it's still a question whether um, this bill that was introduced by John Conyers, a a congressman from Michigan in the 80s, which calls for state reparations, whether uh, it's going to ever have a life, a a legislative life in this country. And people still hope that it will. Um, And so on the side, you have um, white Americans doing private reparations, which... uh, it involves doing things like starting scholarship funds or putting up plaques or kind of just making an acknowledgement that your family has a tie to um, enslaving people in the past
2: and, and what are some of the the arguments or or why is there so much resistance to reparations in, in this case if there's been other cases like you said that where it has happened in this country
3: right so to go back to your previous question so symbolic action would be what uh, african american historians call like doing that kind of thing like starting a scholarship fund or Or putting up a plaque, that many people see that as just symbolic, and so a full sort of uh, societal reparation is what they call full restoration. So they uh, they believe that um, to really atone, to really uh, make it right in some way, or at least uh, lay down a symbolic um, sort of level of atonement that state reparations is the only thing that matters. That if you care about this, you should campaign for state reparations with your with your congressperson uh, your, um, and, and you should try to make that happen um, and, and lobby for that. Um, and anything else is, is just symbolic.
0: You talk a little bit about the difference between confession and atonement. So it's, it's maybe the symbolic actions are... So that was kind of, of
3: my, my journey was it started with confession, with saying, oh, my family had, has had a role in this. And then realizing that just writing about it, it just came off as kind of kind of trite and not that serious that as a, a white American who benefits from a society that still in many ways was built on slavery, um, that just talking about it is sort of it doesn't really make that big of a difference. And it just comes off as, as tone deaf and that the fact that African American families have had this or still live with this ghost um, is something that deserves deeper questioning
0: so how did you go about um, kind of talking to people about this what it's it's got to be a, um, kind of an unusual conversation starter when you call up a historian or a, a academic and say so you it, know, like...
3: it is and and I, I had um, you know some African American historians who were not angry but kind of you know challenging me like you know didn't you always know like wasn't there and, and I, I grew up in Brussels so it's Kind of a weird question that I didn't learn about American slavery in school. Um, obviously, I knew about it, but um, I, I just tried to listen. I, I, I you know, felt very humble right, asking right. people about this. Um, but I mean, once you re- once they realize that you're doing serious reporting and that you care and that you're reporting on both on all the sides and that you are actually looking up stories of people who are doing this kind of symbolic. Uh, atonement Um, I met a woman named Christina Brown who made this movie called traces of the trade about her Rhode Island family that had enslaved um, thousands of people in the 19th century Um, and she is part of this network called coming to the table which brings together descendants of um, people who are enslaved and people who had enslaved other people and so they try to um, build community around that and basically bringing the truth out into the light um, which is something I care a lot about
0: right sure yeah absolutely
1: one
3: point you made here in
1: the story, John, that you can, uh, everyone can read that at AmericanMagazine.org, is that in some ways, places like Germany, in, in the aftermath of World War II, they really did have a reckoning with what they had done to the Jewish people and to other populations. But Americans have a hard time seeing slavery as, in some ways, a real defeat in our national purpose and our morality, and we so we have a hard time coming to terms with it as a nation.
3: I'm sorry, Mike asked that question before, and I didn't properly answer it. Um, yeah, that's right. Uh, a lot of Americans, and there's a, a number in, in the story, um, surveyed, um, don't believe that any reparations are necessary. Um, there's kind of like this sort of... Ne- blind w- willing blindness towards slavery like we, we like to pretend the south was glorious and if you go visit this always has struck me as a tourist if you go visit plantations there's this veneer of nostalgia that surrounds mm. plantations and there's almost this description of you know the slaves were happy and this kind of thing um, which is just you know sort of morally abhorrent if you really think about it yeah it's not okay and so there's still this sort of blocked mindset towards that and there's this also this idea of you know um, in, in in the '80s, especially, there was this political movement of personal responsibility, and you know, um, this idea that you know people in America are responsible for their lot, you know, even if their ancestors were enslaved a hundred years ago or 150 years ago, and so that that current of sort of self-reliant American ethic, I think, makes it harder to argue for reparations. Right.
0: Is there a difference? Um in, in talking about the the reparations uh what it there's an atonement there is what is expected in in return is are, are people asking for forgiveness are they asking for uh, a resolution what what is the sort of relationship of that transaction
3: you mean but from from uh, African Americans
0: yeah like mm-hmm. wh- when if it, uh yeah this is the is do you think like reparations are are are, are truly a way of asking for forgiveness? Or is it sort of like, look, we set, we're we settling this deal. You know, How do people view so, it?
3: So the general consensus among African-American historians is that it's up to the people who are wrong to set the terms of reparation, that um, there would be some kind of committee that would say um, everybody who's descended from an enslaved person would get a, a cash payment of $10,000 or some amount. Um, and they would set that terms. And then by agreeing to those terms, um, the state, the United States, would effectively atone for slavery, and then we could move on. That's kind of the thinking amongst the African-American historians I interviewed.
0: Uh, and it, it makes sense in a lot of ways because a lot of the repercussions through the years that people deal with now are, in fact, financial ones and, well. and I
3: interviewed a, um, an Italian academic, actually, who did a very interesting survey uh, looking at education levels and found that there was a consistent correlation between education levels of African-Americans and whether that county or that region had had slavery mm. that the, the higher the incidence of slavery the lower the level of educational attainment now and yeah. so that was a clear correlation
0: there's a lot of long-term effects for that's sure. right that's right uh, the question of, of what is owed in um, in situations of slavery is one the church is asking and has been asking as well um, particularly the Jesuits actually the Maryland province of the Society of Jesus uh, owned slaves and then sold those slaves to uh, finance the start of georgetown university
1: yeah and i think it carried out. this is something that for a long time just recently the university and the province sort of came forward and said this was a wrong that we committed and we are asking for forgiveness but it wasn't that long ago and i think the the history of the, the church has not always had a great record on this stuff no. And for a long time the jesuits defended their actions by saying well we kept the families together as if owning another as, person uh, <laughs> was a salutary effect. Uh, you know, uh, um, And that they said, well, we were nicer to them than most slaveholders were. And so this has been a very welcome development, I think, saying, no, we did something that was morally wrong and we we have to accept responsibility.
0: Sure, better. and Georgetown has been trying to do some of the things that you've been describing, John, those those sort of personal um, uh, actions of atonement or sort of smaller scale as, as their individual institution. Uh, and they've been offering... Um, scholarships to any of the descendants of the enslaved peoples uh, that they had owned Um, and working on some some other so I think they're putting up a plaque Um,
3: so that's an example of private um, atonement which I'm talking about I talk about in the story which contrasts with um, state reparations which a lot of African American historians still think is the the better way to go
0: yeah Uh, yeah and as you mentioned Jim the church the church's history on this is not always been great there's always been sort of individual Catholics who have been involved in this movement, but the church itself has not had a lot to say on this issue when it seems uh, like it probably should have. So recently, the bishops put out their uh, pastoral letter on racism, which was the first in 40 years.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, if you look at it from a historian's perspective, if you look at some of the major fi- figures in the church's history in the U.S., so you take someone like Dagger John Hughes, the Archbishop of New York, he's an Irishman who identified very strongly with this the lower class Irish who were coming into the city who were notoriously racist towards African Americans. Mm. And he had those same attitudes. And so you read, it can be very cringeworthy to read about him. Someone, uh, you can read a biography that's very praiseworthy of him, but you have to deal with this reality is that he did not see African Americans as equal to him. And the same with uh, Doc Bunn, who was a famous Jesuit, who's president of Georgetown University. was also famously in favor of segregation.
0: Right. Yeah. The church has a lot to grapple with. Uh,
2: John, I wanted to ask you about uh, this group that you wrote about called Coming to the Table. Um, It's a nonprofit. And uh, you write that they want to inject more awareness uh, into the public space about links between slavery and current inequalities. And I'm just curious, some people say that this is history, that their families came over after slavery ended, that there's no need for reparations because they were involved with it. But how does this idea that there are still links between slavery and inequalities today? How does that, uh, or how should that inform that conversation?
3: So their argument um, is that uh, any anybody who is white in this country uh, benefits from a system of privilege that um, was built on the backs of slavery, and that the the wealth that was accumulated um, and built up in white communities benefited from slavery. So you, even if you're Irish and you came over. In 1910, and obviously your family has no connection to owning slaves in this country, uh, that you benefit from that system, which is an argument that um, is disputable, obviously, uh, if your family does not have a direct connection. But that's the argument they do make. And Coming to the Table organizes frequent conferences. They publish a guide to if if you discover that your family has a connection to slave owning, which is more and more uh, frequent, by the way, thanks to the online genealogy revolution, Ancestry.com and 23andMe. Make it way more easier than before. You might find out you have a cousin who's African American that you didn't know about. And Ancestry.com has published the slave schedules of the 1850 and 1860 census, which lists the, uh, not the names, but the ages and genders of people that were enslaved. And so if your family has a census report that says that, then the connection's obvious. And so that's forcing many people into this realization, which happened in my family. And so coming to the tables published a guide on, on how to approach that. Um, and it counsels, for example, um, being very humble in the approach and, and making it clear that you're not insisting on a relationship with somebody who might be descended from people, your family enslaved that you're offering the opportunity for dialogue. Um, and it helps to promote more awareness and they are they are for uh, state reparations. they can they encourage campaigning for, um, state reparations, which would need to be uh, a, a bill signed into law or passed by Congress.
0: Right. And in a lot of ways, those larger actions um, are very useful in and of themselves, but also to make sure that the conversation being had is not simply about yourself, right? And like, oh, well, I I feel this way about this. And, and you know, this other people might be like, great, but I'm dealing with this still, you know, and it's not, it, it takes it outside of just your own reactions.
3: That's right, which is kind of the, the journey that I went on from this being something interesting, I discovered, to feeling genuinely you know, shaken by how present it is in uh, African-American families. And I had conversations with African-American friends that were uh, sort of sparked by this research I was doing. And it was very moving to kind of connect on that level of sensitivity and, and to be able to listen to them in a new light, um, which I had not sort of been attuned to before.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I would imagine so.
2: I'm curious. In, in your own family, has there been any uh, kind of disagreement or debate about what, what you owe or your family would owe to to others?
3: There's a sense that this was a long time ago and that, you know, it's kind of n- not that useful, but nobody's hostile towards this kind of thing. Um, I haven't really decided. I mean, I, I, I support reparations in a way I didn't before, but I haven't you know, started the scholarship fund. I'm sort of still thinking about it. It's pretty fresh. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't know if my family is, you know, eat or I mean that people are, they feel guilty, but there's not a strong sense either way. Was, I mean, I guess acknowledging the truth uh, and sort of being ashamed of it in a way, but not, you know, obviously overcome uh, to the point of paralysis. But yeah, being aware that there's a wrong there that is still present. I think that's happened in a in a positive way in my family.
0: Yeah, um, and what what do you see sort of moving forward in terms of the what what conversations are most useful?
3: So uh, coming to the table reports that since the, the the Trump election and sort of resurgence of of white nationalism uh, in this country, that there's been an increase in interest in, in coming to the table and trying to reaffirm dialogue and and kind of engage on a more truthful level. I mean, the political environment right now. Uh, is very fraught, obviously. Um, and so I think the most useful conversation is just acknowledging the truth and and going from there and um, giving voice to this argument. It's very important, the argument about atonement and private reparations. And I don't think anybody argues that starting a scholarship fund for the descendants of people your family enslaved is bad necessarily, but it shouldn't obscure that there's a greater wrong that our society... Uh, still lives with every day today,
0: right? Yeah, and I think, I think sometimes one of the most frustrating things about the kinds of conversations being had today is people seemingly unable to agree upon sort of what the wrong is, or whether there still is a wrong, or you know those basic facts. You know, it, it's such a loaded word these days. <laughs> Somehow, the like the actual truth is is flexible or debatable, uh, and that that makes that can complicate these conversations because you know the, I I think I don't I don't think that it is debatable that the effects of slavery have affected generations after each other but one one other thing that might.
3: struck me and this is not in the story but my cousin dug up these uh, diaries that one of my great 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 grandmother's had kept and in the diaries they're written in the 1860s and 70s and she describes uh the slaves being freed and then they're living in the, the village around around the family and she describes like her fear of these people that her family had enslaved a decade ago before the civil war and she writes about how they bought these new dogs to protect themselves against the african americans living in that village and you just see like this sort of structure of fear and inequality and tension that starts in the 1860s and just keeps going and one year leads to another and we're in 2019 and you still have fear, you still have tension. You have millions of Af- African Americans incarcerated, you have urban ghettos and I see a direct connection, even more so having done this research.
2: In, in your research were there any moments of hope that things could get better from here or are we entering a time where things seem to be getting worse? I'm curious what you think.
3: I think the the stories of people reconnecting, there's a woman profiled in my story who um uh, found the descendant of, of 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 people that her family had enslaved, and the African American woman was initially resistant to being friends, but they ended up uh, forging a relationship, and so those personal connections, I think, are um, healing. If the people say they're healing, then they're healing. And so those stories do give me hope.
0: Well, there's a real vulnerability on both parts there, I think. Um, And because I could see where a woman, the African-American woman you mentioned being contacted would be like, it's not my job to like make you feel better about what your family did. Like you don't use me as like the salve on this situation. Uh, But being willingness, being willing to be open and to be present to that person is is a real gift.
3: That's right, and coming to the table is, a good organization. It's based out of Eastern Mennonite University, um, and they have frequent conferences. So if if our listeners are interested, um, you can just Google them. They have a nice website with the, the guide I mentioned. Um, and Ancestry.com has people that help you uh, deal with this kind of thing too. I interviewed one of them. Um, so there's lots of resources. And African American uh, genealogy centers are happy to have your contributions. By the way, if you find out stuff about your family, they want you to tell them what you know. Because a lot of record-keeping of African-American life in the 19th century is incomplete. And so if you can, can donate your family archives, you can help them build a better understanding of their past. And that's very valuable in healing, too. Sure.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting thing, John, to think about the way, if there's examples from other countries, that of, of ways we could do sort of social reconciliation on the model of this that would, would help people uh, sort of have some healing. Also, economic, you know, restitution. But, you know, around the world, if there are other countries that were able to do this, I think of South Africa with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission they had, um, or if there's some method like that that would be helpful.
3: South Africa and Germany are the two countries mentioned as sort of models for this where uh, a more harmonious kind of dialogue has been built out of intense uh, suffering and and hatred. Um, And they're they're, they're seen as as models, both in, in Kind of concrete steps that were taken in terms of state reparations, but also the kind of dialogue and intellectual kind right. of piece that came out of these um, conversations.
1: Right, and that's very. It can be very dramatic and sort of heart wrenching, but then you do see positive results. Yeah,
3: true.
0: Yeah, uh, is there any anything else you would hope readers or listeners would would want to uh, should know about this story or about steps forward?
3: I would say that um, this one of the people in my story, uh, a source point, point points out that. Um, just mathematically, if you're a white American, um, there's a very high percentage chance that you're descended from somebody who had enslaved people, and that um, it's part of all our history. So to be curious about your own family and to not be afraid to um, engage on what the truth is, because um, we're all, you know, f- descended from the past in some way, and and it has shaped our lives, um, and it's it's the best basis for having. Uh, a, a shared life is uh, accepting that um, the past is real and that it impacted us and, and helped us or hurt other people in different ways.
0: Well, thank you so much. Thanks very much for your time today and for your work for the magazine.
3: Thanks for having me, Carrie. Uh,
0: uh, thank you for listening as well. That was John Miller. You can find out more about his uh, work and the new documentary he's got out called Moundsville based on one of his America articles at org slash Sirius where you can find Uh, more of our content, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, all the social media, Um, and you can learn more about how to subscribe to the magazine, or call 1-800-627-9533. For Jim Keen and Michael O'Loughlin and myself, uh, thanks very much for listening.
1: listening to the catholic channel
3: Sirius XM 129